George Wallace was the epitome of an oppressor. He was the epitome of, of the legacy of a slave master. And this man kept my people down. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Voices of the Movement, a series from my podcast, Cape Up, sharing the stories and lessons of some of the leaders of the civil rights movement and using them to figure out where we go from here. Our story this week is one of compassion and new beginnings. It's about building bridges, and it's about George Wallace. Yes, that George Wallace, 45th governor of Alabama, known as the man who, during his 1963 inaugural address, said, Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. The man who the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. once called the most dangerous racist in America. George Wallace was the embodiment of resistance to the civil rights movement, but George Wallace is also the man who, in 1982, ran for governor for a fourth and final term and won 90% of the black vote. To understand how this happened, you have to start with Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California and the story of how she got into politics. I talked to her about this as we stood on the Edmund Pettus Bridge made infamous by the horror of Bloody Sunday. I never registered to vote. I was a black student union president working as a community worker for the Black Panther Party and made a decision early on not to register to vote because I didn't think politics made a difference in my life or in the lives of my people. My mother was the first one of the first 12 African-American students to integrate the University of Texas at El Paso. My dad was in the military, and we tried to go to restaurants to eat in his uniform, and they would say, I'm sorry, we don't serve, and would use the N-word. And so I grew up, you know, in this system of oppression and humiliation and segregation and Jim Crow. Lee was attending Mills College in Oakland, California, as the 1972 presidential campaign was heating up. I had a class. It was a class in government, and part of our work was to work in a field campaign for one of the candidates. Well, I told my professor, flunk me, because I'm not going to work in any of the campaigns. McGovern, Muskie, Humphrey, no way. If you listen to the last episode, you know there was one candidate Lee could consider— Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm was the first African-American woman in Congress and the first of her race and gender to run for president. So Lee invited Chisholm to speak to the Black Student Union. And I went up, told her about my class, that I was about ready to flunk because I couldn't work in any of these other guys' campaigns, and maybe I would consider working in hers. And she shook her finger at me and said, little girl, here I was raising two little kids. I was in my 20s by then. She says, are you registered to vote? I said, no, and she looked at me like, you must register to vote, first of all, to get involved in politics. She says, and I'm leaving it up to my local supporters to help me with my campaign. So I went back to my class. I asked my professor, and she says, hey, that's up to you. That's part of the coursework. Bottom line is I ended up organizing her Northern California campaign from my class at Mills College. I went to Miami as a delegate and got an A in the class. Now, remember, I was very, and still am, very idealistic. And I, and I thought Shirley Chisholm was the epitome of what a president should be. There was another candidate running for president that year who we haven't mentioned, George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, who was serving a second term that he had won on a deeply racist platform. George Wallace was the epitome of an oppressor. And so here, this man 
who was running for president was like the descendant of a slave owner. And it was obnoxious to me that America, I thought we had come a long way even when schools were desegregated. Uh, I thought that was a major step in the late, in the 50s. But now here we were uh, dealing with in the early 70s, <laughs> the reemergence of uh, what I thought was the old uh, Jim Crow that we thought we had were working toward ending. George Wallace was reviled in the black community and revered in the white segregationist community. During the pilgrimage to Alabama this year, his daughter Peggy Wallace Kennedy gave a speech at the Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church in Montgomery about when that all began to change. When I was young, living back in Clayton, Alabama, my father, George Wallace, was always on the move. Too much to do to sit down. He wore out the soles of his shoes almost every month. Peggy Sue, you need to keep up, he'd say as we walked home from church. He thought better, talked better, loved life better when he and his shoes were moving. On May 15, 1972, Daddy jumped up from the breakfast table with a glass of milk in his hand. Where are you going, I said. To Maryland, he said. Have two stops, then right back home. Tell the ladies in the kitchen to fix a nice dinner for us and make sure they have enough ketchup, he said as he gave me a kiss and a sideways hug. The mansion kitchen door opened, then shut. I heard Daddy walking down the concrete steps, then over to the car. Let's go, fellas, he said to his guards and driver. A little after 3 p.m. at the Laurel Shopping Center in Laurel, Maryland, Daddy was shot five times. One of the bullets lodged in his spine. Wallace was shot by Arthur Bremer while on the campaign trail. In diaries later found by the police, Bremer detailed how he wanted to become famous by assassinating President Nixon. But when that plan seemed too difficult, George Wallace was the next best thing. The following afternoon, I stood by my daddy's bedside when he was told he would never walk again. No more climbing fences, no more standing up. No more rushing out the door. No new soles on, on his shoes. One pair for the rest of his life would be all he needed. A journey ahead, he could no longer walk along. Had to be saved by someone other than himself. Barbara Lee was campaigning for Shirley Chisholm at the time. She was organizing the Northern California campaign from her class at Mills College. And then the campaign was suspended. And it was suspended so she could go visit George Wallace, the segregationist who was shot, and he was in the hospital in Alabama. I said, what? No way. Her decision to visit Daddy in the hospital was met with surprise and consternation 
So all of the optimism that I had about this candidate, I don't say went away, but I put it on hold. One of her staff members was adamantly opposed to Shirley Chisholm's decision to temporarily suspend her campaign to visit George Wallace, but she did. I, I just could not believe it. How in the world could this woman, this black woman, go visit this horrible individual? When Congresswoman Chisholm sat by my daddy's bed, he asked her, what are your people going to say about your coming here? Shirley Chisholm replied, I know what they're going to say, but I wouldn't want what happened to you to happen to anyone. Daddy was overwhelmed by her truth and her willingness to face the potential negative consequences of her political career because of him, something he had never done for anyone else. I said, Miss C, we called her Miss C or Shirley, how could you do that? I mean, this man, first of all, he's running against you. <laughs> and secondly, he's running for president. And thirdly, he's a segregationist and he's trying to maintain the status quo that you're trying to change. And once again, she shook her finger at me. She said, little girl, she says, come on now, you're working with me in my campaign, helping me. She said, but sometimes we have to remember we're all human beings and, and I may be able to teach him something, to help him regain his humanity, to maybe make him open his eyes, to make him see something that he has not seen. She said, so, you know, you always have to be optimistic that people can change and that you can change and that one act of kindness may make all the difference in the world. She said, so yes, I know people are angry. It wasn't just me. <laughs> She says, I know people are really angry. She said, but you have to rise to the occasion if you're a leader and you have to try to break through and you have to try to uh, open and enlighten other people who may hate you. And that's what she told me. What she said to me took root. And I hugged her and I thanked her and I told her, but I'm so angry. But she said, you'll get over it. She says, you know, this is who we are as black people. And she reminded us of our history and who we are, and we're not haters, and we're not people who are going to, you know, uh, live our lives mean-spirited and, and angry. And so she kind of walked me through why I should move on. <laughs> Neither Wallace nor Chisholm won the Democratic nomination that year. It went to George McGovern, who lost to Richard Nixon in an election that became historic for other reasons. But it was the beginning of something else for Wallace. Shirley Chisholm had the courage to believe that even George Wallace could change. She had faith in him, and there would be others who followed. In 1972, Shirley Chisholm planted a seed of new beginnings in my father's heart a chance to make it right, an opportunity for a better byway for the seven-year journey he, he would take from there to this very church. On a Sunday 
1979, Daddy's arrival to this church was unannounced and unexpected. But for an attendant rolling his wheelchair to the front of this sanctuary, he was alone. What the congregation must have thought when he said, I've learned what suffering means in a way that was impossible. I think I can understand something of the pain that black people have come to endure. I know I contributed to that pain and I can only ask for your forgiveness. As he was leaving the church, the congregation began singing Amazing Grace. Wallace's transformation not only included publicly renouncing racism, it also involved him personally asking black leaders for forgiveness. As governor, he appointed a record number of African Americans to state positions. Wallace even crowned the first black homecoming queen at the University of Alabama. You know, and in getting to know Peggy, you know, I see exactly what Shirley Chisholm meant. I mean, her father, she saw this happened right there in the hospital room in front of her eyes, what Shirley Chisholm told me when I was about to bail. (laughs) And to know 40 years later that uh, this made an impact. And so I just see how Shirley Chisholm's wisdom was uh, something that I will always remember and be grateful for because I hope it informs me in my work every day with people I totally disagree with. Dr. Martin Luther King once said, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. Rather, it means that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. Forgiveness means reconciliation, a coming together again. Without this, no man can love his enemies. As one writer observed, who would have ever thought that George C. Wallace would by both word and act become an example of what King proposed. Peggy Wallace Kennedy ended her speech with a bit of drama, revealing to the audience what you already know, that it was now Congresswoman Barbara Lee who was angered by Chisholm's visit to her injured father. But it is what she said in her revelation that demonstrates the power of forgiveness, healing, and purposeful reconciliation. But there is an important footnote to this story that inspires me every day. The young campaign worker who in 1972 was angered by Shirley Chisholm's decision to to suspend her campaign to visit George Wallace, my father, is here in this church today and who is like a sister to me, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, And the power of love lives on. (laughs) I love you both.
Coming up on Voices of the Movement, music. <laughs> 